Letter of Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you because God doesn't add. He multiplies. Like with the church, Acts 9.31 says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to multiply. God multiplies like his word. Acts 12.24 tells us that the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Like His provision. 2 Corinthians 9.10 He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness because God doesn't add, He multiplies. So Jude is absolutely correct in asking the Lord to multiply mercy and peace and love. Verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend earnestly, he says, for the faith. The faith. One faith. Not one of many, just one. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 5, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And as an end to the one faith is our common salvation. And that's what Jude wanted to write about. You recall we talked about Sunday. I wanted to write it to you. I sat down to write to you about our our common salvation. Now that's that's not common as in generic. You know, or plain. There's nothing common about our salvation. Except that we have it in common. Which is of course what Jude is referring to. One faith in common. It's our koine soteria. Common salvation, koine soteria, our our shared deliverance, if you will, from death to life, our deliverance from this world to eternity, from the commonplace to the place He has prepared for us, and we're going together. Like it or not, we are going together. When He calls, we will all go. C.H. Spurgeon, I, I... He said, upon other matters, there are distinctions among believers. But yet, there is a common salvation enjoyed by the Arminian as well as by the Calvinist. Possessed by the Presbyterian as well as by the Episcopalian. Prized by the Quaker as well as by the Baptist. For those who are, note this, in Christ are more near of kin than they know of. And their intense unity and deep essential truth is a greater force than most of them imagine. Only give it scope and it will work wonders. And it is our oneness that can work wonders if in fact our oneness is in Christ Jesus. Now, Jude wanted to write about this scope. Again, Spurgeon said, give it scope and it will work wonders. Give what scope? Our unity, our common salvation, our one faith. Allow the church, encourage the church to work together with a common purpose to a common end and it will work wonders. James wanted to write about that. 
And honestly, I would have liked to have heard it. When I read verse 3, and he says, I wanted to write to you, I wanted to make every effort to write about our common salvation, I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. But then he goes on and says, I couldn't. I felt the necessity to write something else by the Spirit of God. He is compelled to write this letter. You see, in the community of our one faith and our common salvation, verse 4 goes on and says, certain persons have crept in. Unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation or written of beforehand for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon went on to say, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. And that's the seriousness with which Jude writes this letter. And that's what we're dealing with here. And seeking to understand. As Jude writes to alert us to contend earnestly for this one faith, once for all, handed down to the saints. So grasp this as we go forward. Jude is talking to and about the church. And the warnings are for those of the church. And it's not, again, that we be paranoid. It's not that we're looking down the row at someone. You know, is it that guy? Did she creep in unnoticed? You know, as we seek to grow in unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as we seek to love one another, we have to be alerted to and aware that Satan has found ways to get in to the church. To infiltrate the church. Some of you may have gotten a flyer this last week. A prophecy flyer, if you're especially in Oak Harbor. They mail them out every fall. It's from the same church. It's from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And they're doing a prophecy conference. But they're not doing it at the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They're doing it at the Best Western. So you don't know what you're... And there's nothing on the flyer that says where it's coming from. Or, you know, just, just kind of to tickle your ears and to get a buzz out there. Rick, are you opposed to the Seventh-day Adventists? Well, <laughs> Seventh-day Adventism, I'll just tell you, is, is one that, that many people is, is, say is right on the verge, not to offend anyone, but it's right on the verge of being a cult. Walter Martin, who wrote Kingdom of the Cults, believed that Seventh-day Adventism was cultish. Walter Martin, there's an interesting guy. Little side note for you. We got a lot to cover, but I'm just warming up tonight. <laughs> Walter Martin, when he died, there was a major Christian television broadcasting network, I won't name it, but it, it's out there, that the day after his death said God killed Walter Martin. Walter Martin, who spent his life as a Christian apologist, Walter Martin, who some of you may have Kingdom of the Cults, but he went after things that were unbiblical. He was known for a long time as the Bible answer man, and he wrote about this, and he didn't particularly like his job. He referred to it as, as getting down into the weeds and the mess and the mire of the church and having to deal with these things, even to the point that he was castigated and called out, even within the church. The community of of our common salvation, it's interesting, after 2,000 years, sometimes you wonder, how common is it? And how much community do we have? And when when we see divisions, 
And we see differences as followers of Jesus Christ. One of the most important things we can do is know how to discern what is truth and what is not. Because the truth is, as early as 66 to 69 A.D., some people had crept in unnoticed. And Jude, while he wanted to write about the common brotherhood and the one faith, couldn't do it because he began to recognize exactly what John wrote about, would write about 30 years later in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Those who creep in, the Antichrist spirit, this, this coming up from within church fellowships, deception and, and lies and false teaching, Spurgeon was right. Satan knows right well one devil in the church can do more damage than a thousand devils outside of her bounds. So James, or sorry, Jude in, in, James is his brother, so you can understand why I got the two confused. Jude begins to launch into examples of this. What does this look like? These, these creeps that we mentioned on Sunday, those who are sneaking in, who, who got in somehow by the side door, if you will, of the church. Three examples from the Hebrew Scriptures. And he begins in verse 5 with what I will call children in contempt. Children in contempt, verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Turning your Bibles back to Numbers 14. Numbers chapter 14. The children of Israel, as you're turning back there, the children of Israel were at Camp Kadesh. Kadesh Barnea. They settled on the southwest border of the Promised Land. And Moses from that place dispatched 12 spies. Remember the story? And the 12 went off into the Promised Land as a kind of a, to reconnoiter their future home. They went into the Negev of southern Israel today. They, they went into the hill country. They came back carrying a single grape cluster. Now, I don't know if you buy your grapes at Costco, but I love them because they're big and they're juicy and they come in that big thing and we, you know, we normally will buy that and that's mine. And then we'll buy one more for the family. They brought a single grape cluster back from the promised land that had to be carried by two men. It was huge. Pomegranates the size of basketballs. <laughs> Figs that would defy Newtonian physics. Big Newtons, if you will. But for all of that, ten of the twelve come back to Moses and back to the people, and ten out of twelve guys were acting like grasshoppers fearing giants. They were scared out of their minds. Only two were willing to and ready to believe that they could take the land that God had promised to them. This is the same God who led them out of Egypt. This is the, the same God who they saw Him perform the ten plagues against Egypt and rescue them, decimating the gods of Egypt. And that's an interesting study. Maybe we'll get to it before Christ comes again. I don't know. But the ten plagues taking out the gods of Egypt one after another. And they had witnessed the, the march. They marched themselves from its pillars and, and pylons into the desert by the power and the protection of God. A, a cloud by day of covering and the fire by night. That, that Shekinah glory of God that kept them 
For two years they walked that way. They, they tasted bitter waters made sweet. They were fed manna from the ground. They were stuffed with quail till, as the Lord said, it was coming out their nostrils. He provided big time for them. They walked through the depths of the, of the Red Sea on dry ground. They watched this sea parted by the breath of the Lord. But upon arriving at the promised land, they freaked out. Watch this. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Wow. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness! Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? This is the first Israeli wine. (laughs) Unbelievable. They said to one another, so let's appoint a leader and we'll return to Egypt. Skip down to verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? Skip down to verse 22. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, mad dog, that's what his name means. My servant Caleb because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it skip down to verse 36 as for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord but Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. The very same God, get this, the very same God who delivered them from Egypt destroyed them on the border of the promised land. The deliverer was also the destroyer. Why? When someone's blind to their common salvation, when they're blind to their own deliverance, rather than being faithful, they were faithless. And so the deliverer destroyed. Listen, greater is the faith of a deliverance unseen than the faith of a deliverance seen. As a child growing up listening to these Bible stories, going to church, I remember wondering how in the world could Israel be so faithless? I just thought they were weird. I thought it was a, a, an Israel problem. It's a Jewish problem. They just don't know how to believe what their own eyes tell them. I mean, they saw all these marvelous things and still their faith failed them. It took a few years and a little bit of maturity to understand that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Not fact. And we've talked a lot about that over the years. And the facts are there. 
But it's the faith that is necessary. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 23 says, When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither, listen, you neither believed Him, nor listened to His voice. That was the problem. It had nothing to do with the, with the report of the spies, except that they believed that instead of believing God. God said, I'm bringing you to the promised land. How much proof do you need? Proof isn't going to do it. You've got to trust Jesus. You've got to trust the Lord. The Hebrew pastor said in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17, With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? We see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief. God is still calling you, still calling me today, to faith. To belief. Not to a belief system, but to trusting in Him. Simply trusting Him. Taking God at His word. If God says it, He's going to do it. Therefore, I will believe it. And that's why Jesus said in John 20, 29 to Thomas, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. And there is great blessing in trusting the Lord though we may not see what He's doing. We know we're delivered. Hey, the children of Israel knew they were delivered, but they were children in contempt because they did not believe in the Lord. By the way, note this in verse 5. Where it says again, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once and for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. You might want to mark this in your Bibles. The word Lord there is not kurios like you might expect. The Greek word kurios for Lord. The word that is translated the Lord, some of your Bibles may get this right, but it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Listen to it that way. Jesus, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jesus? I thought God did that. Precisely. Jude understood as much. And he claims, in fact, it was Jesus. Jesus was the deliverer-destroyer. Delivering the people, but then because they did not trust, would not trust, destroying. Why would he do such a thing? Because, listen, lack of faith, lack of faith messes people up. Lack of faith spreads like seed. It scatters. And it infects entire groups of people, entire churches, or in this case, the entirety of Israel. These children were were being raised by parents who had zero faith, who were not trusting in the Lord. And before he was going to take them into the promised land, they would spend the next 38 years wandering in the wilderness, led by the Lord, learning how to trust in the Lord. And the Lord is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, I did not want you to be un- I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, right? And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the same sea, and all drank the same, or ate the same spiritual food, and drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. He was there. Jesus was there. God, ultimately in the flesh, 
was there with the children of Israel. But they were children in contempt who did not believe. Verse 6. And angels who did not keep... And by the way, let me just back up here. If you think, Rick, I think you're going too far with this Jesus thing. Well then, talk to Jude. Because again, he's the one who said it was Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt and subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. It's Jesus. I'm just reading what it says. Verse 6, And angels did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And this is huge. So we have children in contempt. The first example of, of disbelief and how it infects and affects an entire people. And now he talks about angels in abandon. And it's one of the more interesting verses in the New Testament. One that people are curious about. There's some mystery here. In fact, there are a couple of different verses that are very mysterious, at least on the surface, that we'll look at tonight. Angels who did not keep their own domain. Do angels have a free will? Apparently. Apparently. Absolutely created to worship God. Created for position in in heaven. Different levels of worshiping. You've got your cherubim. You've got your archangels. You've got your seraphim. You've got different classes and groups of angels. But all created for the primary purpose of worshiping the Lord and then being ministers of His, servants of His. But these angels in abandon have a free will. And these that He's referring to in verse 6... Abandon, note this, their proper abode. So they had a a place they were supposed to be, a place they were created to be, and they abandoned it in rebellion against God. Well, when did that happen exactly? Well, I wasn't there, but probably when another angel fell, and that is the devil. And you can read about that, Ezekiel 28. You might just notate that. We're not going to look at it tonight. Ezekiel 28, verses 13 through 19. And Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 20, that talk about Satan. And point two, the devil. And his fall, and his desire to lift himself up above God. That he wanted to be the preeminent one, and it didn't work out so well. And so he fell, and we're told in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, another place that gives us information about this, John says, Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail, and the dragon, by the way, is Satan, and we'll find that out when we get to Revelation 12 very soon. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And we see in Job, and we see in other places that stars can refer to angels. And John sees this as a sign. He's referring to something that took place in the past when Satan himself rebelled. And when Satan rebelled against God and was thrown out, he was 33% successful. A third of the stars, a third of the angels. He gathered this rebel force, which we call demons now. He gathered to his side and they were all thrown down. Now I will tell you, they still have heavenly access. Job witness this or or writes of this in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 that Satan was up before God with the sons of God presenting himself and letting God know what he was up to. He's moving to and fro about the earth which is his new place where he's cast down to. But he has access. That access will ultimately be denied and that's an interesting study that's coming up. 
But listen, these angels, and the reason why Jude is referring to them, they had their own domain. They had a proper abode. That is the spirit realm. So these angels that he's referring to in verse 6 are not just those who were cast out. Even after being cast out, angels, demons, have a spirit realm. A realm, a proper abode, a place that they are supposed to function and and be. And some of these angels, verse 6, some abandoned that proper abode. And I will prove it to you and show you. This is fascinating. And just sticking to the scriptures, not getting out there, not having a seminar at the Best Western. We're we're just going to stick to the scriptures. Demons generally impact the physical world in in three ways that we can define, I think. Uh, Suggestion. That is through lies and temptation and lures. So they can make suggestion. They can impact the physical world through oppression. That would be fear and despair. And sometimes, thirdly, they impact the physical world by, you know, possession. They actually can possess a person. I think when the, when the person is open to that, or welcoming to that, or living a lifestyle that, that invites that in. But suggestion is what we still deal with sometimes as followers of Jesus. We get those temptations, those lures. Everybody is prey or can be prey to the suggestion of demons. And oppression can fall on people. I don't believe that a Christian can be possessed. I think suggested to or oppressed, yeah. But I don't believe a follower of Jesus Christ can be possessed. And yet, possession happens. We saw it rampant in the time of Jesus. And I believe it still occurs today. And that's where a demon takes direct control of a person. As Jesus described in Luke eleven twenty four, When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes seven other spirits more evil than itself and they go in and live there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. But understand this, they are still functioning spiritually with dramatic physical impact. So a a demon possession does have physical impact but the demons themselves, these angels, are still functioning from a spiritual place. I guess you could say a proper abode, though I don't think God wants anyone possessed. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And talking to Christians, he's, he's saying that we can stand firm against suggestion and firm against oppression. But he goes on to say our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So it's a spiritual realm that demons function in, and that spiritual realm does interact to a degree with with the physical realm. But these angels, these abandoning angels in verse 6, did not keep their own domain. They abandoned their proper abode. There were some others who were of such extreme evil, they abandoned the spiritual and they took on the physical. Follow with me. Keep your finger there and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6. Can you find Genesis? 
Do you know where that is? Okay. Verse 1. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. What's the big deal? You're just talking about sons of God, just followers of God, right? The phrase sons of God is bene Elohim and refers to, in the Old Testament, angels. Angels. Bene Elohim. This I know is bizarre, but I didn't write this. So just listen closely. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. Actually, the word wives there is Isha, which is just women. They took women for themselves, whomever they chose. Verse 3 says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. But then it says this, verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God, the Bene Elohim, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, and those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Nephilim, giants. Nephilim simply means giants. There were giants born to these sons of God and daughters of men. There was something different, something messy about that. Now, Rick, you cannot possibly be saying or suggesting that angels, fallen angels, demons, actually came in and cohabitated with, with women, are you? Is that what you're trying to... That's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that's what I believe the plain text of the Scripture teaches us. And this appears to be supported by Jude. It's what he's talking about, that following, or prior to, prior to the flood, angels cohabitated with women. It was part of the reason God flooded the world. The evil was that intense. Fallen angels, demons, cohabitating with women, bearing children. And again, that's the plain sense of the text. And what Jude tells us is that these were imprisoned in darkness until the judgment of the great day. Well, Peter wrote about that. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Hell is not hell as you might think of it. It's Tartarus. It's the pit cast them into the pit and commended them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Peter said that. Now Jude is repeating the same thing that he's kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. But listen, the judgment on these fallen angels is not their judgment. What do you mean? It's the judgment of mankind. These become tools of God's judgment On mankind, Revelation chapter 9 describes their release from Tartarus, from the abyss, the abuso in the Greek, from the pit. They are released and they are part of the judgment that God is pouring out on this Christ-rejecting world in the tribulation. And we'll get there in Revelation chapter 9, but we've got to save that study. Jude is giving an example. Here's the point of all this. And you may disagree with me, and that's fine. Study it out. Think it through. I absolutely believe what I've shared with you is is what the Bible is teaching on this and these things did take place and we have seen examples of angels in physical form doing physical things like when the angels, when God and the angels came to visit Abraham and sat down and had a meal with him. 
We see different times where this occurs in the Hebrew Scriptures. So it shouldn't surprise us that the, the ability to take on form like that would, would be there for these fallen angels. But Jude is speaking of them to give an example of something very specific here. Beings who are created to worship God, but who willfully deny their rightful place. They have a place they were made for. They have a domain that they are intended to remain in. There is a sense of order. God is not a God of confusion. And so they were made for this, and yet they deny it. They were created ultimately, or originally at least, to worship God. And look at what's happened. And when we talk about demons, don't ever forget, they were one-time worshipers. They were in the congregation. They were among those lifting up praise. That never happens in the church, does it? Those who are in the congregation who lift up worship and praise to God, but really their heart's not in it at all? Actually, they crept in the side door of the church? Oh, wait a minute. That's what Jude's talking about. And he uses this example of angels in abandon. They deny their rightful place. And by the way, with it, they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have, each one of us, a proper domain. We have a God-given proper abode. All of us do. A position in this world, in this life. We function best when we are in that place that we were created to be in. When we function properly, we are most happy, we are most fulfilled when we don't abandon our proper abode. And I can give you all kinds of examples I mean, I I know I'm old school just to talk about that there are proper things for men and women to do. Proper roles for us in our own two genders. And by the way, there's only two. (laughs) But that we function. Men have things that they are called upon by the Lord to do. And we are blessed and we are fulfilled, gentlemen, when we do those things. Ladies have roles and functions that they are to do. I'm not talking about equality here at all. We are absolutely equal. We are one in Christ Jesus, no question. But we have different abodes, roles that God has created us for. And we are satisfied and we are fulfilled when we embrace those things. When we reject them and go our own way, we end up in a mess. But the picture he's getting, again, is these who abandon what they were made for. These angels were made to worship. And instead they became willful. And this brings me to number three. And I hesitate even to use this phrase. It's a double entendre, but I I need to use it. And it's humanity in heat. Humanity in heat. Verse seven. So he's talked about Israel. He's talked about angels. Israel delivered and destroyed. Angels who were worshipers but become willful. And now, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Did you catch that? In the same way as these. These who? The angels who did not keep their proper abode. So... You may or may not agree with Pastor Rick about what these fallen angels did. The Bene Elohim, were these sons of God, angels that actually cohabitated with women? I don't know if I can accept that, Rick. Well, Jude believed it and taught it. In Holy Scripture, 
Jude says, in the same way as these, referring to the angels, he talks about those in Sodom and Gomorrah who indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. That was the sin of the angels. Gross immorality and going after strange flesh. Leaving their proper abode for something that they were not supposed to be connected to. Well, did you know that Sodom and Gomorrah were once beautiful? They were great cities. They were garden spots of rural renown. Listen to this. Genesis 13, verse 10. You can turn there if you want. I know it's hard to find, but you can slip back there if you'd like to. I'll read it to you. Genesis chapter 13, verse 10 says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. What garden is that? Eden. This is how beautiful it was. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar, And so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they, that is Lot, and Abraham separated from each other, and Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. And it was beautiful. And the region that we believe belonged to Sodom and Gomorrah, if you go there in Israel today, it's a wasteland. There's nothing there. It's a desert waste. Why? Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Great cities. Gross immorality. Back in in Jude 7, and and stay in Genesis if you're there because I have one more thing to read to you, but back in Jude 7, he says these are those who indulge in gross immorality. The word is ekpornuo. The word pornography comes out of Pornia, ex pornuo, which literally is to be completely given over to sexual immorality. Pornia is just sexual immorality. Ex pornuo, that's man, you're all in. It's all you think about, it's all you do, it's what defines you, it's what characterizes you, this gross immorality. This was a scenic metropolis, but given to strange flesh. Literally, another flesh. Not the one you were created for. Men created for women. Women created for men in terms of sexuality. No, this was given over for something completely else. Trading heterosexuality for homosexuality. And the Bible's clear on this subject. As we have seen again and again, regardless of what American culture thinks we're so bright to have discovered. The Bible's clear. It is strange flesh. It is not how we were created. It's not what we were created for. In Genesis 19, skipping ahead, verse 24, it tells us that the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. His wife, Lot's wife, from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt Now Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And that's Sodom and Gomorrah. The land 
Boy, it started out beautifully. A well-watered garden gift from the Lord. Created, made beautiful, people settled there. And it ended up an absolute wasteland. Why? Because God's intention was spurned for man's intention. What God created us for was denied and rejected. And that tells us something, that even the blessings of the Lord can be twisted and trashed by rebellion and unbelief. Jude makes a very clear and plain point. We can do things the Lord's way and find and enjoy blessing, or we can do things our way and destroy blessing. And he gave Sodom and Gomorrah, gave that region as as a place of, of blessing. So Jude gives us three examples here. Children in contempt, angels in abandon, and humanity in heat, and I'm talking about the heat of the fire of the Lord. I remind you again, the context of these examples is the slow advance of apostasy in the church. The hurricane heresies, the storm warnings of Jude. And it all comes from the very same root. Ultimately, it all comes back to one thing, and that is the rejection of the Lordship of Jesus. I trust Jesus. I believe Jesus. I do it His way. I reject Him I deny His Lordship, I do it my way. It's very simple, it's very plain. This is what he's talking about. And then in verse 8, he gives yet another example, talking about these these apostates, these people who creep in and want to destroy what is good and beautiful and blessing from God. He says, in the same way, these men, that is the same way as Israel, in contempt, the same way as the fallen angels, the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties or angelic glories or glories. The word is doxa there. Doxas. It's, it's the plural form of glory. It's glories. They revile, revile glories. These guys that, that Jude is getting after and talking about think way too highly of themselves. They revile glories because they think they're greater. Grander that they, they've got something better. They are the preeminent ones of their so-called faith. And they are in way over their heads. And they do it by dreaming. What does he mean by dreaming? Well, he's talking specifically about prophetic dreams. Prophetic dreams and visions. These are those who come along and they creep into churches and they begin to say, Oh, I had a dream. And, and in the dream, the Lord told me to do such and such. Or this or that or the other. I had a vision from the Lord. And the vision was this. Man, how do you argue that? How do you argue with someone who says, the Lord told me? Well, if the Lord told you, I guess that means we better do that. It can be very confusing. We have gotten, I believe, in the American church, very, very lax with our use of God told me. Well, the Lord said. I've, I've shared this with you before. Do you know the Lord said? I'm not saying the Lord doesn't speak to us. I absolutely believe He does. <laughs> this church wouldn't be here if I didn't believe that. But are you sure it was the Lord, or is it just you? Or is it just something that you read in Scripture, and therefore, yeah, the Lord did speak it. I was studying the other day, and, and, and the Lord showed me da 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 Well, yeah, absolutely, that's the Lord, and that's His Spirit. And I do believe that there are times where the Lord gives direction I believe where the Lord speaks and we need to be sensitive to the voice of the Lord. 
But man, dreams, prophetic dreams? The word here for dreaming is... Wait a minute, let me get this right. Enupniadzomai. Say that with me. Enupziadzomai. It's not easy to say. Anyway, dreaming is the word, and it's only used two times in the entire New Testament. It's used right here by Jews saying that these men by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, revile angelic majesties. They do it through dreams, through the, the propagation of their prophetic dreams. Hey, we dreamed this. We, we had this vision. We had this supernatural experience. And so you got to listen to what we have to say. And that's where they draw their source of authority by dreaming. The only other place it's used, Acts chapter 2. And it shall be in the last days, God says, as Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Now this seems to set up quite a quandary for us. Because the Lord said through the prophet Joel and repeated through the apostle Peter, there will be dreams and visions. This is a legitimate uh, means of communication, if you will, by the Spirit of God to the people of God. Dreams and visions will happen. You will hear from the Lord. He's going to give dreams. He's going to give visions. Well, okay, but if He's going to do that, how do we differentiate? How do we know the dream that is from God versus, I don't know, those data dumps? I think some of our dreams are just data dumps. You know, you've taken in so much through the day, you don't know what to do with it, and your mind just kind of goes... And you dream weird stuff. Like Anna Marie the other, the other night said, Dad, I dreamed that all my teeth fell out. I said, Honey, brush. Now, did you know that's a common dream? How many of you have dreamed you, you lost your teeth? Look, look at you. Brush. <laughs> but that's just weird. I mean, there's just weird stuff. And we dream bizarre things. We'll wake up in the morning and go, Where did that come from? Data dumps. And then there are dreams we have, and it's like, I've been having this dream over and over and over, and this seems to be right in line with the Word of God and the will of God, and I think God may be speaking. Well, how do you, how do you differentiate between the phony, especially between those who come along and say, I have this fantastic dream from the Lord, and this is it, and you've got to follow me because He's telling me that you've got to follow me. How do we know? Versus what's legitimate. Listen. We don't toss out dreams and visions. We test out dreams and visions. It's very simple, and God gave us a means to do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Don't quench the Spirit. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us not quench the Spirit of the living God. We will be in big trouble. We'll be a bunch of dry saps. If we quench the Spirit of God, don't do that. Paul says, do not despise the propheteia. That is prophetic utterances. But, examine everything carefully. This is where we fall down. This is where the church, especially the Western church, has a lot of trouble. It doesn't examine anymore. People don't know the Word. Don't test things against. What does the Word of God say? You come bringing this vision, this idea, this thought, this dream. Great. What does the Word say? How does it align with God's Word? Does the Word support it? Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And Paul is talking about the context of dreams and visions. Test it. 
John said in 1 John 4 verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, and that's every human spirit he's talking about, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So there's another measure of testing there. Does this exalt and proclaim Jesus? Or does it lift up the dreamer as someone special? No, we're looking for Jesus. We're testing against His Word. The apostate comes along and uses dreams to defile and to rebel. And these false teachers also will contend with authority that is way beyond themselves. The doxas. They would actually contend with angelic authorities. Spiritual beings greater than themselves. Now Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3, Do you not know that we will judge angels? I think that's cool. I think it's fascinating. I also know it's not right now. We are not the judges of angels right now. We apparently will be at a future time in the kingdom, but right now, no. Man, we have enough trouble judging the matters of this life. We have enough trouble discerning human issues and human things, much less thinking that we could be higher than angels. Camerly said this 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 morning. I thought it was interesting. i got to share with you. It's interesting to me that we're talking about these things because we are about to enter the single greatest dream, the single greatest vision ever given to humanity. The book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is a vision, folks. A remarkable vision given to John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos from the Lord and it declares in no uncertain terms Jesus Christ. But interesting in the placement of things in the Scriptures that Jude somehow lands right before Revelation as if God puts up a big flashing red stop sign and says, hold on a second. Before you go into this vision, before you enter the stream, stop. Pay attention. Some will mess this up. Some will turn the revelation of Jesus Christ into many revelations. Some will use it to confuse. Some will have seminars at the Best Western. I'll stop, I'll stop. (laughs) How do we know the book of Revelation is legit? How do we know that dream truly was from the Lord Jesus to the Apostle John and and to be passed along for us to study and read and embrace and say, this is good stuff. I'll tell you how we know. Three ways we test it. Three ways that we know. The revelation of Jesus Christ is grounded in the Word of God. You cannot study Revelation without studying the entire Bible and you will see this as we go through it. It throws you back into the Scriptures. Over five, not a single, by the way, not a single... Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture quote in the book of Revelation, but over 500 references as we go through it. We'll we'll look at that. It's grounded in the Word. How do you test a dream or a vision? Is it grounded in the Word? Secondly, when John received it, do you remember where he was? Revelation 1.10 tells us he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We test all things by the Word of the Lord. We test all things by the Spirit of the Lord. There is 
an answer here then, even just in the book of Revelation itself, for judging dreams and visions and taking care, we discern, number one, first and foremost, by the confession of Jesus. Does it confess Jesus? Like the revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, by the word of God, is it consistent with the Bible? Is it biblically accurate and grounded in the Word? And thirdly, by the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't give us one or two. He gives us all three. Exalting Jesus, consistent with the Word, confirmed by the Spirit. But these guys, these guys use their dreams to source their authority. Verse 9, he goes on and says, But Michael, the archangel... When he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And since you're all well studying that verse, let's just move on to verse 10. I'm kidding. This is another one of those bizarre and interesting verses, and it's interesting for many reasons. Even Michael, and here's the point he's making, we'll just get this out of the way right up front. Even Michael, a glorious angel, didn't revile angelic glories. Even the archangel Michael knew his place and did not abandon his proper abode in dealing with Satan. In this example that Jude gives us, this is the first of of two Jewish apocryphal examples. What do you mean? Two Examples he gives in the letter that come from the Jewish Apocrypha, from sources outside of the Hebrew Scriptures, outside of the New Testament. Now, we're to the point now, when you hear the word Apocrypha, people hear that word and go, oh, well, that's got a kind of a, I don't know, a collegiate sound to it. So it must, that's got to be a good thing, right? It's in the Apocrypha. Do you know what Apocrypha means? It means obscure. It means secret or of unknown origin. The Latin word apocryphus is of unknown origin. That's the apocrypha. We can't confirm where it comes from. We can't confirm, is it legitimate? We can't say, oh yeah, these books, these are inspired. We don't know. There's enough doubt and there's enough oh obscurity about them that we have to say, well, they're apocryphal. So they're secretive and we're not going to put the stamp of inspiration on these writings. Which presents an interesting problem for us, doesn't it? Because Jude quotes two of them from two different sources of the Jewish Apocrypha. Verse 9 here is from the Assumption of Moses. The Assumption of Moses. And then over in verse 14 and 15 from the book of Enoch. And we're going to check that out on Sunday morning. The Assumption of Moses, or the Testament of Moses, uh, written sometime, we believe, in the time between the Testaments, probably written from a, a more devotional perspective. And listen, understand this. Though it is apocryphal, and we can't say that the Assumption of Moses as a writing itself is completely, thoroughly accurate, we can say one verse out of it is. One story is, at least. The one Jude quotes. The one who refers to right here. Jude is not verifying the legitimacy of the entire assumption of Moses, but he does consider this reference, clearly he considers it to be historical. That this is actually something that took place. So I'm going to take Jude at his word here. And I accept this as as a legitimate thing. Now, we know the name Michael. 
So this is, this is not new to us. Four times in the, in the Bible we see the name Michael assigned to this archangel. Michael the archangel. He is that, that archangel champion of Israel. He's written about in Daniel chapter 10 verse 13. He comes alongside and fights with Gabriel. He's written about in Daniel chapter 10 verse 21. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. And then again in Revelation chapter 12 verse 7. We'll see Michael duking it out with Satan in the heavens. Marvelous story there. Michael is not a made-up figure. Michael's legit. Now, as far, as far as the body of Moses is concerned, in this interesting verse that Michael the archangel disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said the Lord, rebuke you. The body of Moses. So what's the deal with that? All we get biblically is what we read in Deuteronomy 34 verse 5. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. Moab is that land that's mid-Jordan, middle of Jordan, right on the other side of the Jordan, on the other side of the Dead Sea, is where Moab is. And he died there in the land of Moab, and he, that is God, buried him. I think that's fascinating. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. That's what the Bible tells us, that Moses died in Moab, God buried him in the valley opposite Beth Peor, that's as far as we get. And God doesn't tell us anything else. But in this writing of the assumption of Moses, Jude draws out this interesting vignette where Satan is arguing with Michael over Moses' body. Now, I would love to see that on video. Because what an interesting moment there. In the assumption of Moses, it, it teaches that Moses, because he was guilty of murdering the Egyptian, Exodus chapter 2, verse 12, Satan says, he's mine. Satan claims the body of Moses because of that great sin, says, this guy belongs to me. He owns the body of Moses. And so he's arguing there with Michael. I don't know why Michael. Perhaps Michael was there guarding the gravesite or guarding the body or whatever. I don't know. But this argument ensues. And you need to understand here proper placement because Michael is an archangel, right? The Bible calls him that. Satan, according to Ezekiel 28, was a guardian cherub. Cherubs are higher than archangels. Michael, even though Satan would be a fallen or is a fallen cherub, Michael recognizes that respectfully and so he defers to the Lord when this argument comes up. Michael doesn't go all off on Satan. Well, you're the jerk who fell. He didn't do that. He deferred to the Lord. The Lord rebuke you, he says. What's marvelous is in the story, again, in the assumption of Moses, is Michael contended for the faith without being contentious. That's a great example of how do you contend for the faith. You don't have to be a jerk. Just defer to the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. He said this and the devil fled. The moment Michael brought God into the argument, Satan sprinted. That is very instructive for us. In fact, Jude's brother James, in chapter 4, verse 7 of his letter, said, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Bring the Lord in. Submit to the Lord. That's what Michael does. And our best resistance to all things devilish is submission to the Lord. Just submit to Him. 
Do what He asks you to do. Not what your flesh wants to do. Not what's being suggested to you. Just do what He says to do. Now Michael's deferential attitude to God in this story is included by Jude to highlight the arrogance of these apostates. Not even Michael would do what these guys are doing is in essence what he's saying. And the storm warning continues in verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. How instinctual has our culture become? It's amazing to me. I can't believe how far we've gone in 10 years, in 15 years, this this culture in which we live, the world in which we live. Do you know that our colleges and universities, and I'm sure this is no surprise to any of you, but they have actually redefined gender as how a person identifies. Your gender is not biologically XY or XX chromosomes. Your gender is how you identify. That's gender. That's the new definition of gender. However you identify, whatever you want to identify, that's your gender. I thought it was so fascinating. I don't know if I told you all this. We were down at Pike Place Market. Did I tell you about that? Anybody? You're going, I don't know if you did because you haven't given us enough. Okay, I'll give you more. We were down at Pike Place and there was the men's restroom and the women's restroom and we were stopping off and I noticed going into the men's restroom. I thought it was fascinating. This is in Seattle, downtown Seattle, you know, gender fluidity capital of the world. And on the tiles going into the men's restroom was, what is men's? It's XY, right? Aren't men XY? Am I right about this? Please help me. Yes, men are XY because the women look at us and say, why? So we're XY. (laughs) Women are XX. And on the tiles going into the men's restroom, it said XY, 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 XY as you go into the men's restroom. And XXXXXXXXXXX when you're going into the women's restroom. And I stood there for a minute and I went, i got to get a picture of this. I didn't because that would be weird. But, but they got it right. They got it right. You know what identifies your gender? Your chromosomes. So, you know, in Rick's world, you got your XYs and your XX and that's that. That's pretty basic. Why are you going off on this, Rick? Listen, we live in a culture that is so into our feelings and our desires that we have left even common sense. We've left reason and we've gone to instinct. Instinct is what feels right. What what feels good. That's your instinct. It's what what you just kind of do without thinking. It's animalistic. We have left scientific empirical enlightenment in favor of animalistic, instinctual, destructive behavior. That's where our culture has gone. I feel that this is right for me, people say. Or, or this is my truth. Or, well, yeah, but this is, this is just what I think. Or I had a dream. And my dream tells me this is the way to go. And I believe we are watching culturally a return to the dark ages. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. When the enlightenment goes dark. This is where our culture, this is where our world is going. But you know what? 
It always has been. This is nothing new, folks. Where American culture is going today, every culture in history has gone. Just do the math. Do the research. Go back and and do your history. Study it up. Every culture begins to spin out. Every culture may begin brightly. Some have. And ends up going dark. Every single one. That's where it goes. It's the opposite, by the way, of evolutionary theory. It descends into chaos. It doesn't get better. And, and this, is, this is the way of the world. Humanity turning again to instinct over intellect and unbelief. As unreasoning animals over faith, over trusting in God our Creator. But, but listen, this is so important with this letter especially. Jude's concern is not the culture. Jude's uh, storm warning is not against the outer world. It's not the sin of the world that he is warning against. It is sin in the church. This is a church issue. Everything he deals with in this letter is church issue stuff. And that's why I believe this letter is so timely because, my friends, I am watching the Western church absorbing and assimilating far too many unbiblical values. And and I I think, I'm so thankful we're in the Word because this challenges our values. Some of us, I've told you, I think I said on Sunday, in 15 years of studying through the Bible, I have had my own biblical values challenged many times. Things that I just, assumptions I made. You know, one, one big obvious one, and this actually got challenged before the bridge began, but I was kind of a replacement theology guy. I believe that Israel had their chance, they blew it, and now it's the church. And God's through with the Jew. That that was what I thought. No one, I don't think anyone specifically told me that as a child when I was growing up. But I I assumed that. I, I, I absorbed that into my thinking. And it, if were it not for the scriptures and studying the word of God, I'd probably still believe that. There are good Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, who think Israel's done and the church has replaced Israel and the church is the new is the new Israel. And the Jewish people are out. I couldn't disagree more. That was an assumption that I made that I just kind of absorbed. I just believed, well, that's how I was raised. Which, by the way, is the worst reason to believe anything you believe. Well, that's what what I've always believed. Well, what does the Bible say? (laughs) What does God's Word teach? We make assumptions that we don't even know we're making and we absorb beliefs that we don't even realize we're absorbing and if we're not in the Word of God testing and studying out these things, we will just kind of wander down the road thinking, yeah, we're pretty much okay. And then, when the apostate emerges in a church, people follow. Why? Because they don't know any different. You know, Bibles don't get opened. Nobody's studying the truth. There's a famine in the land for the Word of God. And when these things take place, corruption more easily slips in the side door of the church. I'm not paranoid. I'm not worried about it. I don't think Jude was freaked out, but he's compelled to write to contend for the one faith and to teach the truth. And I want to show you one final thing, and we're going to stop here. But if you'll look back at verse 5, listen. 
Jude writes, I desire to remind you that though you know all things once for all, the Lord, and and by the way, I think there's a little tongue-in-cheek there at the beginning of verse 5, though you already know everything. Let me just say something anyway, get you thinking. Because we can assume we just know all things. We don't. Which is why we continue to study. That's why, Lord willing, when we finish Revelation, we're going to go back to Genesis because we don't have Genesis down yet. Anyway. Though you know all things once and for all, the Lord, that is Jesus, Jesus, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, He's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Why review those three verses again? The children of Israel were delivered by God. The fallen angels were worshippers of God. Sodom and Gomorrah had blessings from God. Is it possible then to be delivered, not saved? A worshiper, but not actually worshiping. Blessed, but not acknowledging the giver of all blessing. The answer that Jude would say to that is yes, because he just gave three examples of that exact thing of people delivered but who were not saved, ended up destroyed. Angels who were worshippers but truly not worshipping because they ended up rebelling. And Sodom and Gomorrah who received this abundant blessing of beautiful land and nature all around and yet they rebelled against the very giver of that blessing. And Jude uses these as examples to say those delivered, those worshipping, those who received blessing seemingly, seemingly, but really are none of the three. And Jude is saying, keep an eye open because they're in the church. They are among you. He he goes on in verse 11 and says, woe to them. Woe to them. They've gone the way of Cain for pay. They've rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. They've perished in the rebellion of Korah. We'll look at that next week. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. You know what that means? They're taking communion with you. They're there. They're part of the deal. You don't even know, or maybe you don't, or maybe you're starting to wonder because, man, what that guy's teaching is wonky. They're there. They feast with you without care, without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, which is a specific phrase there. Uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And we're going to come back to this for further examination next week. But listen, Jesus described these within church fellowship. He described them in three ways. Tares in the wheat, birds in the branches, leaven in the loaf. He described them in that way to say, be alert, be aware, love each other, but hold to the truth. Seek the truth. Teach the truth. Know the truth so you know the difference. For after telling those parables of the tares growing up alongside the wheat, of the birds nesting in the branches. People say, but I like birds. Well, not these birds. 
These are evil birds, like the ones who used to poop on my notes in the barn. Evil birds. Leaven in the loaf that spreads out. And that can happen in churches, and we are seeing it happen even in denominational churches today. And Jesus, after sharing those parables, He explained, Matthew 13, verse 40, So it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Out of His kingdom. So they're there. He will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. Hear what, Lord? Hear the Word. Just hear the Word. And as Isaiah said, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Let's stand up together. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand before you tonight for the one faith, a community of a common salvation. Lord, even as I look out at my brothers and sisters tonight, I don't, I don't judge or deny any, anyone their salvation in You. I look to and I see brothers and sisters. And I see those whom I love. And I see those whom, Lord Jesus, You died for. But I pray the same prayer I've prayed for many years over our fellowship. And that is that we would be discerning that there would never be an apostate voice or a false teacher creep in the side door of the church and begin to lead astray any of us. Lord, Your Word assures us in this and gives us great confidence. We can trust You. We can know that You will protect us if we will but listen to You and believe in You and take You at Your Word. Father, I pray that we will continue to grow in this and embrace the study of Your Word and test everything against it. Whether it's things that come along or, Father, even our own feelings. May we test all things against the truth of Your Word. Thank You for giving us such such a sure foundation. A foundation in Jesus. And a certainty by Your Word. And then the confirmation of Your Holy Spirit. And I ask, Lord, as, as a brother and sister just shared with me earlier tonight, I, I pray that the discernment antennas will stay up in this place. That we will all be a discerning fellowship. And Lord, even the things that we've studied and looked at tonight, if anyone is uncomfortable or wonders or questions the teaching, that they will simply go to Your Word and study it out. And Father, show me if I'm wrong. We are not here to follow any man. We are bondservants like Jude of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we worship You. You alone deserve our worship, for You alone died to save our souls. And Lord, now we worship You as we take communion together. We do this because You said as often as You do this, do it in remembrance of Me. And so tonight we do this to remember You to honor You, to exalt and elevate You, Lord Jesus. 
the King of Kings who became the slave of man to die on that brutal cross. We thank You. We remember You. We proclaim You until You come as we share in communion together now. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship and come take communion. It's set up at the front tables.